Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm delighted that we're joined today by Joan O'Donnell. Joan is a, a, a lecturer in systems thinking. Now, I'm a big fan of this systems thinking because I think it's that interconnectivity of the complexity of things that really makes the difference in the inclusive world and has been lecturing on the topic for a long time now. So welcome, Joan. Uh, it's delightful to have you with us. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing around disability and, and systems and how you're using systems thinking to include people? Okay, well, thanks. And um, I have to say, I'm really delighted um, to be with you today. This is a subject that's uh, really um, important to me. Um, I think that about 12 years ago, I was handed this policy brief to say, look at employment and disability. And I realised that actually it wasn't on the agenda a lot of the time. Um, we were talking about disability in terms of care. We were talking about disability in terms of education, of, of therapies and so on. But really, the issue around um, employment and people with disabilities was, was not really on the agenda. And technology was even further away. So in terms of being a systems thinker, I was I, it was really hard for me to work in the kind of siloed way that we usually look at issues. So I was thinking, well, work and poverty are really, really tied up together here. Um, the, you know, the meaning of work and what it brings in terms of a breath of opportunity as well as lifting people out of poverty wasn't being addressed and looked at. And really, a lot of people were either getting on with their lives and out of working or they were actually, you know, part of a larger system and a family system which was protecting them or they were actually out there on their own and living in in, in very poor and circumstances which curtailed not only their their a sense of belonging and doing something meaningful at work, but also that sense of um, having a poverty of experience in life, and and that that is something that really began to to um, concern me. You know, when I used to go to um, a a disability service, you you could often see people sitting around and they didn't. There was no internet access in services. Um, so neither the staff nor people attending them might have had the digital literacy skills. Um, and, and so, you know, as, as the world of work has progressed, you could see this, this sort of divergence happening more and more. And, um, and also, you know, traditional services were really adverse um, at, at uh, you know, risk averse, really, in, in terms of introducing people to social media. So that really got me thinking about um, the world of work and the future of work, um, the the interlinkage and the with um, with poverty and also poverty being more about um, poverty of opportunity as much as lack of access to resources and how technology really seemed to me to be a really key way um, in which people could be more included. And that's quite a lot to unpack. Um, but but I, I'm with you on all of these core things, because without the access to the plumbing of the internet, mm -hmm. we're essentially excluding people from being able to uh, access learning and information, access cheaper services and products, access government services and help and all of the rest of this kind of stuff. And by 
using these things acquire the skills that enable them to have jobs, economic opportunity, and also that sense of self-worth that we probably too much attach to our employment status and the jobs that we do, because uh, I, I think we, we work to, you know, we're not working to live anymore, we're living to work, and, mm-hmm. and that as a society, we often measure ourselves on our job titles and our, uh, and our sort of status rather than, you know, whether or not we're good human beings. So, so mm-hmm. I think that that positioning of people in society is dependent on the access to tech and the access to those sort of hygiene factors that, that enable people to, to participate fully. So how, once you'd identified the problem, how did you then start getting into working with people to try and resolve it? Gosh, I'm I, I'm not sure this this might come as a disappointment to you, but I'm not sure that there are answers or solutions to these issues. I think that we need to shift from thinking about solving um, very complex and messy social situations and and looking at them more as um, how do we learn and how do we continuously learn around. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because, you know, as soon as we, you know, set up a a response um, to something or like, for example, with regards to work, we would have, you know, workplace adaptation grant systems. No grant system that I've ever seen has been able to keep up with the rate of technological change, for example. So, you know, you're going to have people constantly arguing about whether an iPad um, is an assistive device or or whether, you know, we're afraid that you'll use it for, you know, non-work or, or non-related um, reasons than the one that we're giving it to you for. Mm-hmm. So all, with, within all of these things, I think that there's a number of different ways of going at it. And one is to create all the structural changes. Um, so in structural changes, you've got all the institutional change. We've got the um, CRPD, the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. So we have all of these things. So then we need to figure out ways in which we can move towards them. Um, and very often we'll find that there's a big gap between our aspirations and then the institutional arrangements that we have catching up with them. What we need to remember when we're thinking at that very high strategic level is, is that, you know, people, we all live our lives in local, situated, immediate um, sites, situations in our homes, um, in our communities, um, offices when we used to go to them, etc. So that is really, really critical in terms of understanding what it is that we need to change. A lot of what we need to change are the practices um, that we engage in. And and I think that remote working has provided a really good opportunity to reinvent and reimagine um, work. Um, And not just trying to move the office home, but actually reshape what it's all about. So that, that, as you say, Neil, it's more of a human centric system. Um, where people have got a reason to get out of bed in the morning, you know. Um, so if you flip Maslow's triangle of need, you know, or hierarchy of needs on its head, I think you've got the real proper triangle. You know, if they say we need food and water and shelter, etc. 
But actually, we need a reason to get out of bed to it to to resource ourselves to have those things or have human systems that resource us to be able to live and get out of it, get get on with our lives. Yeah. So, uh, Joan, I, I was reading uh, the, the report and um, looking into some of the conclusions, and and then going back to some of the reflections that myself, Deborah, and Neil have did over the last couple of years. Um, I would like to have your take. Do you feel that is it possible to move forward to create spaces for disabled people in the workplace without CEO support? Without CEO support. CEO. CEO. Okay. okay. So the just to um, frame that the the report that we're talking about is um, the Employers for Change report, where I interview or we had focus groups with both employers, employees, and then brought them both together. Um, and some of some of the organisations that we were speaking to were large multinational organisations, and they certainly said the employers were saying yes, we need leadership to come from the top. Um, they were really struggling with um, diversity and inclusion to include disabled workers. Um, and this was exacerbated by the, um, the, the, the pandemic, obviously, when people weren't being seen um, in their workplaces. But also they were saying even to recruit people for DNI networks was becoming more difficult. They weren't seeing the posters by the lift, the, that things were beginning to become even more difficult. So they were saying, um, and that's, this certainly came out in the report, that that um, CEO support is absolutely critical. I think one of the other things that came up, though, was that during the pandemic, when employers were um, creating a lot of spaces for people to come together and mental health spaces and so on, that the take-up wasn't so great. So there was a sense in which um, there was a need for a different kind of conversation between employer and employee. Um, people, you know, we've all, we're all very familiar with Zoom fatigue now, but there was this sense that of loss and of a lack of disability confidence amongst employers, and that's their words, not mine, around what actually would be really useful here. What did people need in order to thrive in these new circumstances? So we definitely need CEO support. Okay? Mm -hmm. we, that, that, that is clear. Okay? Yeah. So... But that's so we, we, we need we, we need to, we need to find we need to find a way that then uh, other uh, elements of the organization are also able to deliver on that and and for me HR is particularly critical. Mm -hmm. So people in human resources they were never you know somebody might have mentioned about disability employment somewhere in one semester at the end of a, of a, one of their lectures. So what? we need to do in order to move forward uh, within organizations to, to make people aware of the importance of, of this and, be, and somehow be in a position where they find ways to, to instead of coming up with, with solutions, they're able to know, you, you, you look into a report, 
we have listened to people. How can they listen to employees in order mm -hmm. to be able to, to deliver to their needs? Um, I think you're asking a couple of things there. The the one thing that came up in um, this piece of research was that there was, um, the, as I said before, um, employers weren't very disability confident. Um, and there was this chicken and egg situation between we don't have a lot of people with disabilities on our team. Um, should we provide disability awareness training as part of our diversity and inclusion training? Or should we recruit first and then um, and then um, provide the training? And so the, the the sort of the the way the conversation evolved around that was that it was really useful during COVID to begin to have these conversations because there was a lot more self disclosure happening. Um, you know, people began to reach into each other's homes a little bit more. We all began to, you know, humanized work in a, in in a way, um, and and you know, people began to disclose disabilities that nobody at work knew that they had. Also, I think everybody became aware, more aware of each other's um, caring responsibilities and so on. So, so. Th th there's that humanizing of the workplace, which needs a different kind of a conversation. People said, look, we want a different kind of a space, as I said before, but we also want employers to understand that um, it's not just about mental health, because that's where the employer's conversation, there was greater comfort, but it's also about um needing and having the technology that you need to work effectively at home. And there was some disjoins really there because employers didn't understand that maybe employees needed something um, at home and assumed that, you know, people would all be really set up, basically. Um, so the the other thing that was, so in technology was a really, really big factor here. Access to technology, um, assistive technology in order to be able to work better. And, and and clearly, you know, there was a lot of really good practices that built up during the pandemic. You know, we all learned to listen to each other, not talk over each other so much. Um, the flip side of it, of course, was that meetings were happening faster, being called faster, you know, um, and the drive to return to business as usual was meant that over time, some of the really good stuff that people started doing at the start um, w w kind of faded away as as uh, large companies began to um, bring in their own um, platforms and so on. So the, the more comfortable we got with it, the less um, au fait people or, you know, the less inclined people were to make an effort to make sure things were more inclusive. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. I think I veered off somewhere, somewhere along the way. No, no, I, I, I'm just. My only purpose is basically to generate this discussion. So there's not really. I was not looking for an answer. I was just yeah. looking for your for your opinion. You know, that's that was it. <laughs> Back to you, Neil and Deborah. 
Yes. And Joan, uh, we sure appreciate all of your work. And we would really like to get a copy of that report that we can share with the access community, access check community. I know I would like to get a copy of it too. And I know you said you started talking about assistive technology. Mm-hmm. And one thing we've learned so much. And what I pray is that we actually, as societies, remember what we've learned because we've been talking to society for years. I feel like I've been nagging society mm-hmm. to include us, to include us. If when we're not included, we're lonely. We do not feel like we we can find our own purpose and contribute. And so, of course, during the pandemic, a lot of people learned what we meant by isolation and loneliness. And of course, we're still walking that. And I know that Antonio the other day shared an article with Neil and I that 87%, I think if I'm remembering correctly, of employers are saying telework will continue. And by the way, employers, if you want access to the best talent, you better make sure that telework continues or we're not going to work for you. And as during the time of the great resignation, it's already happening. So that's why, once again, I think your work is so important, and Joan, and all the work that our entire community is doing. But I was wondering, because you mentioned offline a little bit about what you're doing with assistive technology, and I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind telling us more about that, because I love the work you're doing. Sure. Um, thanks so much, Deborah. Um, what we are doing uh, around assistive technology has been going on for a number of years. So um it really prompted this piece of work with employers for change um, uh, around looking at the potential of remote working. And and what we have done is is really sought a a comprehensive ecosystem um, for assistive technology services here in Ireland. Um, we weren't alone and we're certainly still not alone, but we don't have a comprehensive or a coherent assistive technology um you know system of provision right so we were very aware that you know a lot of the provision was very ad hoc it was fragmented um again it you know it 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 wasn't working in the world of work any more than it was working in education and then the two systems didn't meet together so if you needed it for independent living, you weren't getting it over here. And and there was funding silos and it was a very, very long road to get anything at all. Mm-hmm. So together with um, the Disability of Federation of Ireland and Enable Ireland um, came together. I worked with the Disability Federation of Ireland at the time and we developed a community of practice, um, which was to bring together... Um, all of the everybody who was interested in assistive technology in Ireland. So we've got a thriving community that's been going since 2014. And we have people who use the technology, design and develop technology. So we have the academics, we have industry. We have also got um, educators, service providers and uh, OTs, physios, etc. All involved and we come together well, be prior to COVID, we used to come together four times a year in different venues. So from the city council offices to uh, universities to large service providers who could, um, you know, hold us all because we'd have up to 100 people uh, or more at a meeting. And it really was designed as a learning space and as a shared space where we focused on different topics um, at different times. But the 
the value of it was was that you might be presenting one week, but you're you're you know in the audience five minutes later, and that it was you know we were a learning community. And during COVID, we took that online, um, and it's been enormously successful and valuable in terms of having conversations whereby people could learn and resource um, themselves and each other to actually continue to deliver services or to do what they were doing online. Um, And also, of course, as part of that work, we developed um, a model which we call the AT Passport, which in conjunction with that community, we saw would was the 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 best way forward for creating a systemically viable um, system of of introducing AT um, supports. So, you know, it we we need to get the procurement right. We need to, uh, you know, we need to get the training right. We need for people to be able to have ownership of their own records. You know, because so much is held and held back from people as well without meaning to because um and 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 so there's a lot of duplication there was a lot of duplication of assessments where you could get them um and, and nobody knew where anything was at so the the philosophy was that the person who's using the assistive technology is the expert in their own lives and needs to be able to drive what it is that they need. So it would include both the assessment, um, the trialing of AT funding options and and resources. And that the idea was that that would work across um, that that would work across government departments. So it doesn't matter what I need the technology for. I need to be able to, you know, have it in my home if I'm working remotely. Right. Um, and so on. So, and we found that a lot. We, I mean, that has been a problem for years. And and also, um, of course, some people um, attack assistive technology and say it's not needed, and it's actually um, something that um, prevents people with disabilities from being included, which mm-hmm. always always confuses me because I think that's the opposite. But um, so, I think assistive technology is really important, and also recognizing that assistive technology is also mainstream. It's mainstream and it's part of the assistive technology field. And so uh, you, one thing that we found happening over and over and over again, especially, for example, with my daughter with Down syndrome, is that she would have assistive technology at the school, but not at home. Yes. And so then, of course, we saw this happen during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They had it at the office, but they didn't have it at home. And like you said, Joan, we found in the United States that more people finally identified as Americans living with disabilities because finally there was a reason for us to identify. There was some reason that would benefit me more mm-hmm. to tell you than my fear of you discriminating against me, which it, it's sort of sad, but that's the way people have to think. They have to try to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. So I just love the work that y'all have done in Ireland. And um, and I know Antonio did share the link with us in the private chat. So it's really, really a good report. Compliments to you, Joan, and everybody that was part of it. Thanks so much. Um, I, I suppose that the the work of chat is, is really core to creating the ground. Chat is what we call the community of practice. Um, it stands for the community hub for assistive technology. And um, we're centered, of course, around digital assistive technology. Um, 
And it, it really does provide a ground and a source for learning and an entry point um, where, you know, you don't have to be an expert to turn up. You know, if you have an interest, you're welcome. And and we make that really, really clear. And I, I think that communities of practice are um, really, really critical um, okay. to, to learning in different ways because all of our entry points, like you say, are different. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we don't even know who we are as a community. We don't even know. We're still figuring it out. And I know there's many, many people, for example, here in the States that don't even realize they're part of our community because they don't know the definitions of disabilities and society's decided disability is bad. We're all broken, which is ridiculous. And so it's I think society is starting to understand you know, who we are. I mean, mm-hmm. is Neil, for example, broken? Yes, we all know Neil's broken, you know, because he has ADHD and dyslexia, you know? And so, or if we educated him correctly, could he actually change the world with the brilliance of his mind because he thinks differently? So I um, I think there's a lot for us to unpack and to learn as we move forward as societies, but your work is just really important. And I also think we need a lot more communities of practice that are welcoming to all. Because as you say, Joan, if you're even interested in this, if you're intrigued, join the conversations because actually you have you do have something that you can give because we all have our different perspectives. So um, compliments once again to the work that you're doing. We're very pleased to be turning up the volume for you. Thanks so much. We we all know that I'm a a lost cause, right? (laughs) I know. Don't you like how I picked on you? I could have used myself as somebody that struggled with a school quite a lot. Fine, you pick on me. So so (laughs) I I think that... um, I'm going to zoom right the way back to some of the things you said about we can't solve all of the problems because, but we can make we can make progress and we can create frameworks and and these communities of practice and engagement mm-hmm. um, that that can really help incrementally improve things and we and, and of course nothing is static either so you know technology is continu- continuously moving so like you said. There's no point in, in sort of having these fixed approval lists. You're better to have processes and ways of doing things than lists of approved things. And, and to a certain extent, flexibility and the acknowledgement that the people with the disabilities are the experts in their own conditions. Because I think that that's something that quite often we end up with. You know, oh, I'm an assistive technology expert. I'm going to tell you what you need when that's really probably not what someone might need so I, I think it's it's great that you're engaging with the community and I think that that this is this is really useful as communities within the workplace so you've got your you know employee resource groups and, and and networks depending on which part of the world you're in same thing really um, and and getting the feedback from them is really important they've been a big driver for some of the initiatives inside our organization atos in terms of pushing us to become disability confident at, at mm-hmm. level, you know, in the UK, we've actually, there's a government scheme that classifies you levels one, two, and three, and we've made it to the end of that. So, um, and I know Deborah's got to drop off, so bye-bye, Deborah. Um, Joan loved your work. We'll, we'll loved your work. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think that um, 
those conversations with the groups and the employee groups are are really helping employers understand what they need to do and drive that forwards to a certain extent. But there's also an element of there has to be some viability in what they're asking for, because when you're looking at remote working and the complexity of delivering that in really large organizations, and we work in a really large one, and we supply the, the sort of remote working solutions to other really large organizations, there are some constraints in this, because you want to make the stuff work. Mm-hmm. And the, the assistive technologies are complex, and then they've got to operate with other technology so there's some significant effort that goes into making all of this stuff work together and be interoperable so whilst in an ideal world everyone would have a perfect choice and be able to choose whatever they wanted there is a balance to be struck between giving people choice and making sure that the things that they choose continue to work as technology continuously evolves and gets updated so so those are some of the things that that we as a as practitioners and um, our customers in enterprise are seeing a lot of, because it's how do we balance all of this stuff? We want to be inclusive, we want to talk to our users, we understand, but we're getting different messages about all of these different things. How do we find that balance to give them something that's reasonable and still enables them to be as engaged and productive and um, having the opportunities as anyone else. Are those are those conversations happening in the groups that you're working with too? Um, I, I suppose that one thing that employees were saying is that we're not being asked. Um, we're here, we have the expertise, please ask us. Um, we want we want to be involved. In the conversation, whilst managers and employers are running around in the background going, we don't know what to do. Um, So there there was that disjoint. There was also a sense in which the conversation needs to go wider than HR and include the technologists in the organisations. A greater sense of attention to the accessibility of the products that are now being, you know, people are engaging with um to to keep workforces connected um but the key thing i think was that we need to have different kinds of conversations that aren't about blame throwing that aren't about your department versus my department um and that are actually coming together to try to solve a problem so it's you know it's in line with the kind of social learning that that a community of practice provides um and the term that um that we came up with um, for the kind of learning that needs to happen in organizations is systems convening that at a at a systemic level within both the organization and across organizations that there was a need to convene a conversation um, that was different about how do we figure this out? How do we sit down together and look at um, what are our resources here and how do we deploy them mo- most effectively? So you've got finance involved in that as well, which you wouldn't expect to. But we need to decouple the person, involve the person who wants, who needs the um, accessible tech 
um, but decouple the problem from them. And that's a tricky thing because it's not their problem. It's a company-wide problem. Um, And the employers are saying, hands up, we're going back to more inaccessible ways of connecting people because the drive to get back to business as usual is really strong. They're also saying, which surprised me, is that um, they're having difficulty keeping ERGs going um, around disability. Um, so they're surprised. saying that w- w- you're not surprised. Okay. No. What, why are you not surprised? Because advocacy work is exhausting. Mm-hmm. And unlike other advocacy, uh, other ERGs, people are going to have energy-limiting conditions. So if, if you're familiar with the, the idea of spoon theory, you've only got a certain amount of spoons to be able to, or energy to be able to give to the employee resource group. And if you need to use all of your spoons just to be able to do your work to keep employable and make sure that you're hitting your objectives and everything else, then it it's naturally going to detract from the long-term viability of those ERGs because you don't have the the energy or the bandwidth with to to really dedicate to to keeping these things going. So, uh, and on top of that, you've got all of the additional workarounds that you need to do in order just it's like the disability tax on you. So. It doesn't surprise me. And, and most of these ERGs are side of the desk jobs. It's very few organizations that are giving people additional time or additional money to do this stuff. You're expected to do it on top of your day job. Mm-hmm. So that's why these things are, are, are often failing. And, and the, the people that can maintain it generally either in organizations that recognize that there needs to be funding and time set aside for this stuff, or they have enlightened managers that are supporting them and making sure that enough load is removed that they can do this. So so I think that, that there needs to be an examination about what it means to be an ERG lead or even contributor. And that if businesses really want them to succeed, they need to invest in, in some of that stuff. And do you think as well that, um, sorry, <laughs> I'm asking you questions. Do you think as well that there's something around the degree to which we've all been working even more hours since um, we've yeah. gone online? People are giving over their commutes. We're squeezing more meetings in. Um, it's tiring. Everybody is saying this is more tiring. Um, we don't have the, the the bandwidth, the spoons like you're describing. But there's another thing, which is is in you're in an ever decreasing cycle because, um, you know, in Ireland, for example, we have the lowest rate of employment amongst people with disabilities um, across Europe. And um, some Eurofound research came out on that. And, and I wrote the um, Irish case study. Ireland was used as a case study in that. And I wrote that and we realised that all of the things that are there to support and to help uh, people into work aren't working. So the people who are there and who've already made that transition, because getting into work with a disability and then retaining work if you acquire a disability is so engulfs all 
of your resources. And it's the similar situation with, um, you know, uh, if you're if you if you live in poverty, then you're you're thinking on a day to day level. You're just trying to survive. Um, oh, so, guess what? The the disability and the the the, um, the people that are living in poverty populations have a huge overlap. So. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, so for sure. Um, I, and I think I, I, the changing work—that's that's something we really, really need to be aware of. I'm I'm really conscious of the ethical positioning of of encouraging more people with disabilities out to work without negotiating a really, really good deal. Yeah, it, it needs to be it needs to be meaningful work. It needs to be well supported. So, you know, we we can take the various different models of disability and we we apply the the the, the biopsychosocial one within our own organisation. Because we, it's it's the sort of halfway house, if you like, between the, the social and the medical model, and we're in seventy odd countries, so that, that have different views around disability. But but equally, it's about making sure that you assume capability with support and make sure that that support's there. The thing is, that support's not just about the assistive technology; that's the support in the societal infrastructure that educates people and skills them in the first place. So so actually. As employers, there's some work that we've got to do that goes far, far back down the chain into the education system to support people to get those skills so that you have qualified candidates and all the rest of it so that they, they can get into work, that they that the playing field is leveled much earlier on because because it's so uneven. We've reached the end of our time. It's a shame because we've, we can go on for, for a good deal longer. I'd just like to you know, continue to thank uh, my clear text who support us and make sure that we're captioned and keep us accessible and um, look forward very much for you joining us on Twitter on Tuesday night. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you.